I'm excited to see what the Lord is going to do uh, through our text today, and I hope uh, that you are also. Um, We, uh, for those of you who haven't been here uh, over the course of several weeks or several months, or um, I don't know how many sermons it is, but it's been over the course of uh, two years we've gone through Exodus, and um, we are uh, coming to the conclusion of our uh, Exodus series. And so, um, if you haven't been a part of a church like ours, um, some of you have, and uh, some of you haven't. If you haven't been a part of a church like ours, something you have to understand is uh, we preach uh, through the Bible, um, mostly book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, on a weekly basis, uh, in order as much as possible. Uh, and so, what you'll find today is sort of the culmination of uh, a year or two of preaching uh, through the book of Exodus. And so, um, if this is your first time here, um, it might be, um, you might feel like you're sort of catching the last pages of a good book. Um, if you've been here for a while, uh, it'll sort of be um, like the author's note at the end of the book. You know, it'll sort of kind of give us uh, clarity and some remembrance and um, some understanding as, as to what is happening. Uh, but we come to Exodus chapter 40 and we finally see uh, the glory of the Lord coming down in Exodus chapter 40. That's where we're going to be uh, today. Exodus chapter 40, we're going to read um, verses, uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read 1 through 38 as we celebrate the glory of the Lord coming down. Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put it in the ark of the test, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up the lamps, and you shall put the golden altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priest. And their anointing shall admit them to the perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the uh, above on the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the tabernacle on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in its place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting 
in the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the temp- of the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the, cl- then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, so often we wonder, so often we fall away. So often we try to do things our own way. We try to make the things of you about us. We try to make our way your way instead of your way our way. Lord, would you help us to take the example of Moses? Would you help us to take the example of the faithful men and women throughout church history. And when, and when a story is written of our life and it is read aloud, would it be said of us that we were people who did as the Lord commanded? That we were not swayed, that we were not pushed that we were not prodded or prompted by society, by changes in culture, that we were not forced to adhere to the way of the world, but that we stood strong with true faith, with full assurance. We stood our ground and we drew near to you. God, would you teach us just as you have through, through Exodus, would you teach us through your word as we draw near to you every day of the week for the rest of our lives. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. Teach us today in your son's name. Amen. We're now at the end of ex, the Exodus story, and it's, we have this bookend from where we started. The beginning of our text notes that it's the first day of the first month. And the command is on the first day of the first month to erect the tabernacle. This is important because of where the Exodus began. We remember where the Exodus began, right? It began with slavery. It began with violence, oppression, and death towards God's people. And now we see a a much different picture. We see God's people free and unhindered to worship the God that rescued them. And they're, they're setting up roots of sorts. You know, they're not, this is not the place that they're going to stay permanently, but they're setting up roots along the way. They're setting up a foundation along the way. Now, all of the laws and lessons that we have been taught through Exodus, that they have learned and been taught through Exodus, they're just beginning to really take hold. And they're ready to set up the tabernacle as it was promised in Exodus 29. It would be fulfilled by God that they would set up the tabernacle and that Aaron and his sons and they would be priests of the tabernacle, that they'd be consecrated, that the tabernacle would be holy, and that the Lord God would come down to tabernacle to dwell with them. But the time of year is not insignificant also. The time of year is significant. There's a little neat fact that you might have missed or you may have caught or whatever, but it's okay either way. But the fact is that this tabernacle um, building, this tabernacle setting up, is on the first anniversary of when God took them out of Egypt. One year of trials, one year of missteps, disobedience, and more, and God is still faithful to his covenant. He still fulfills his promises. Now, there's still a long road ahead. We know this. If you've read anywhere, 
past Exodus. We know this. There's still a long road ahead. But, we now, but for now, we see a huge victory that will really, this tabernacle, this setting up of the tabernacle, this setting up of laws and ordinances that we've seen in Exodus will be a huge victory that will set the course of worship for the people of God for a few thousand years. We see through these people that God is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to his glory. He is faithful to himself even when we are not faithful to him. We found this out along the way that God's faithfulness didn't come because of what the people did. Because certainly, if anything, God's faithfulness would have been withdrawn because of the actions of the people. But specifically because God is faithful to himself. He cannot lie. And especially he cannot lie to himself. He's faithful to himself. He's faithful to his glory. So we see in Exodus 1 and 2 that the Lord is erecting the tabernacle. And it really is a culmination of all of the work that he has been doing up until this point. That's why the date is significant. Because the Lord began that work in this time and just on the anniversary of that, he is completing, he is bookending the work of the, of the Exodus. In verses 1 through 15, it's really an introductory statement to the building or the erection of the tabernacle. The Lord told Moses to build it, how to build it, and how to consecrate it. But not only how to consecrate it and its contents, but also the people who would worship there as representative heads for his people. The raising of the tabernacle was not an insignificant event. The Lord had promised again to be with them and to tabernacle with his people. He was making good on his promise to be in the midst of his people. Do you remember the mourning and the sorrow that happened when the Lord said to the the Israelites, you go ahead, you go ahead, but I will not go with you. What did they do? They were still dressed in the ornaments of the, of the um, golden calf celebration. They took off their earrings. They took off their necklaces. They took off their ornamentation. And they mourned. And the Bible says that they did not put on their ornaments again. This is not an insignificant event that now what we see is God giving instruction on how he will dwell with his people. The people are heading in the right direction, at least for the moment, and God is rewarding them for that. Under the leadership of Moses, they start obeying the Lord, obeying his commands, and the anticipation is there. The anticipation of his coming, of his indwelling is there. So Moses begins the work. He raises the tabernacle and he pitches the tent of meeting, and yet there's no presence of God. He then took the Ark of Covenant and he placed it in the tabernacle and, and then he screened or he covered, it, he covered it with a tent. This was later known as the Holy of Holies and it was known as that way throughout their history. It was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the most important place in the tabernacle. You remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant? It's called the Ark of Testimony. Well, the testimony was in the Ark of Covenant. It was the Ten Commandments were in there. The Holy of Holies was the place where God governed with law and authority over his people. Yet after Moses finished the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in all, amongst all the people, the Lord did not come down. Moses then set, a ta- set at a table on the north side for the bread of presence. The bread of presence is what the priest ate at the end of each week. And it symbolized God's provision and it was a sign of the fellowship with God. He set a golden lampstand on the table on the south side opposite the, the bread of presence, opposite that table. And the lampstand lamp was shaped um, as an image, to be an image of the tree of life. Symbolizing the fact that God is the source of life and light, both physical and spiritual. He is the creator and he is the redeemer. And yet when Moses had finished, the glory of the Lord did not appear. Between the table and the lampstand, Moses set an altar of incense. It was next to the Holy of Holies. It was Israel's sweet altar of prayer, where intercession ascended to God's throne like the incense raising to heaven. Moses offered the first incense on this altar, and yet the 
glory of the Lord did not appear. Moses then moved outside the tabernacle. He set up the altar of sacrifice. It was a bronze altar where the priest would offer the burnt offerings and the grain offerings. Moses initiated a system of sacrifice that was the way the people sought atonement from that point until Jesus. It was a way of atonement for the people, but also it gave God the praise. The sacrifices gave God the praise that he deserved. He then set up the bronze basin meant for washing, where the priests and Moses would wash, their, wash themselves and consecrate themselves to meet with the Lord. Still, no glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses set up the outer, outward temple, the outer temple, and the curtain of the tabernacle. This was the fence of the tabernacle from the people. It's to fence them off in order to show that God is holy and he is set apart. He is not common or he is not to be dealt with in simple or unholy ways. But the curtain also had an entrance showing that even though he was holy, there was access to him. Moses did everything that the Lord commanded He did everything right, down to the specific detail, and he finished the work. All of these things that Moses did to this point to the tabernacle did not produce the glory of God. But when he finished, when he finished his meticulous work, the glory of God came down. Now listen, I don't have time to go through and point out every specific beautiful illustration that is in each one of those. There's not time. This, this is maybe four sermons to do that. But you need to catch those. If you're a believer, if you've been in the faith for longer than a year or so, you can catch many of those. But they're there. And after the Lord, after Moses had done the work that the Lord had commanded with meticulous detail, with specific and and exact work, the glory of the Lord came down. The glory of the Lord came down and it filled the tabernacle. Philip Ryken said that the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, was the divine seal of approval that Moses and the people of God were in the will of God. F.B. Meyer says that this brilliant light of surpassing glory Here spoken of the glory of the Lord, which was undoubtedly the divine Shekinah, shone from within the tabernacle itself, so much that the very curtains were transfigured by its glow, and the whole place was transfigured and rendered resplendent of glory. This was God's curtain call of the Exodus story. This is the Lord taking his bow. The God that, uh, that appeared in the unconsumed burning bush. The God who plagued the Egyptians and then tossed them in the Red Sea. The God who brought manna from heaven and water from the rock. The, the God who led in a cloud by day and a fire by night had settled with his people in their midst. And for the moment, all was right with the world. God the limitless God, all-present, all-powerful, all-mindful God of the universe dwelled in nothing more than some cloth stitched together. Here we go. Here's one of the, I'll give you a key, a little, a little key. Here's one of those illustrations, and here's one of those sort of foreshadowings that, that we find so beautiful and rich. God, the limitless, all-present, all-powerful, all-mindful God of the universe dwelt in nothing more than rags, condescending down to his people, confining himself in an earthly temple in order that his people might feel him, see him, know him, and follow him. Does this sound similar? Have you heard another story like this in the scriptures? The Lord would stay this way until finally a house was built for him later through King Solomon. When he went, the people would go. When he came down, the people would stay. Not taking a move, not changing a detail unless the Lord 
had said. We might be wondering why it took so long to get to this point. If this were a movie, it would be the love story where the girl overlooks the love of the best friend, for the best guy friend for other men. And the men keep disappointing her, and she complains to the best guy friend about not ever being able to find some, not ever being able to find the right one, right? And it comes to a head, and the best guy friend he threatens to leave, and the girl finally realizes at the end of the towards the end of the movie that the best guy friend was what she wanted all along. And then some things come together, and we find them kissing at the airport, or in the rain, or in the middle of the street in New York City. It's one of those, you know, it's one of those stories. The pushed aside love, the, the unseen love, the, 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 the love that was not good enough for so long, that was abandoned for other loves, and finally it comes to a head where the people of God realize that their only hope, their only love is now with them in their presence. He's been with them all along. The glory of the Lord has come down. The, the Lord is in the middle of the camp just as he promised. The Exodus part of the story is over, but there is an entire new story that is about to begin. As a matter of fact, uh, Leviticus, if you've gotten this far in your yearly Bible plan, Leviticus, it's, it's an interesting book. Some of you get that far or like skip ahead. There's an option on my, uh, on my app that I read through if like I miss a couple of days that I can like catch up and it just skips through everything that I miss. So sometimes reading through the Bible in a year I might have skipped Leviticus. But if you don't skip Leviticus or if you've been there, uh, we see that the Lord shows further instructions on how to keep this unity. The Lord goes right from Exodus into Leviticus on how to keep this great thing that they have going. He lays out the sacrifices and what would be necessary for those people. We also know that the people of God would go through years of falling away and years of separation. Now remember, we've discussed this multiple times, but there is a pattern that persists amongst God's people. And don't think, like when I say this, I am talking about the past, but don't think you're better than this. There's a pattern that persists amongst God's people, and here's the pattern. God does something great for his people. He saves them. His people follow him. They obey him. Time goes on and they forget, the people forget the faithfulness of the Lord. And they begin to abandon, they begin to run away from the faithfulness of God. And God as a means of punishment, not just to punish for the sake of punishment, but to get his people right, to bring them back in fellowship, he allows people to come and overtake them. They are, his people are under the rule and authority of someone else and not of God. And then God, uh, they realize the error of their ways, they repent, They trust in the Lord, and the Lord sets things right again. But that cycle happens multiple times throughout the Bible. I mean, heck, for some of us, that cycle happened this week, right? I mean, it might have happened this month. It's definitely happened this year. But God is setting up in Leviticus, and he's setting up in the future text, as we've seen through the Bible, ways for his people to be redeemed, to follow after him. As a matter of fact, what we find is if we take the gospel story from Genesis all the way to the end, we see at the root of the gospel story, we see at the root of it, it is God working out his plan of redemption in different generations, in different times in history. Never leaving, never forsaking always drawing his people near to him. Those who would draw near to him. Those, that remnant of the faithful. The story is not complete for the people of Israel. But for this moment, at the completion of the tabernacle, the Lord is telling the people two things. And I want to focus on those today. He's telling these people two things that they will need to hear and understand as they go forward. The two, the two sort of things that they are focusing on that the Lord is revealing in our story today is that the Lord has come down and He has come near and His nearness is an approval of their obedience. Let's look at the first one. The glory of the Lord came down to show that He was near. The Lord was near to his people. Now, of course, we, uh, he had been and he will be near to them forevermore and throughout time. But as we often do, we often need tangible proof 
that the Lord is near. And the Lord gave it to them. Not because they asked for it, because the people did what he said. The reason that tangible proof that he was near came was not because they asked for it. Because they asked for it from Aaron and what happened? Poof! Out of the fire popped a golden calf. They asked for it from Aaron and Aaron said, I don't know what happened. They gave me their gold. They asked for the Lord and out popped this calf. Not because they asked for it, but because they did what the Lord said. They obeyed. We live in a Christian society that is so inept, me included, you included, and so unable to draw near to God that it would be funny if it weren't so sad. Honestly, drawing near to God is so painfully easy that it would seem that even the most simple person could figure it out. But often it is the hardest road. This is what the people of God did multiple times throughout history and what the people of God are still doing today. The way God was defined, friends, for the Israelites was clearly defined, is clearly defined for us. But instead, they look and we look for other routes. It was immediate gratification that they sought after in the wilderness. It was the golden calf at the foot of Sinai. It was nearness through the golden calf. And the golden calf, it was meant to be an instrument produced by man in order to draw man near to God. But it almost cost them their union with God altogether. It was instant gratification in the wilderness. It was man-centered nearness at the foot of Sinai. Later on, we see that they want to draw near to God for some more immediate gratification and uh, move onward to the promised land. They want their reward of fellowship with God without the time and effort and sacrifice that it takes to be a child of God. Does it sound like our culture today? Friends, I, I am certain that if we are able to understand the sociological aspect of this historical book, of the historical people of God, it will allow us to understand our own issues with drawing near to God. God's people have been constantly fighting to draw near to Him and constantly failing because they attempt this unity in self-gratifying ways. This has happened through the history of God's people and it is happening in our society today. Sarah Young, in the, inter- in the introduction to her infamous, I call it infamous book, Jesus Calling, False prey to this. She says, I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my time of communion with God. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible. Here's the key. But I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Now, in his review of this book, Tim Challey says this. In those few sentences, she sets up unnecessary competition between her revelation and what the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be well-equipped for every good work. We search for God, for nearness of God through special revelation. God, speak to me. What are you saying to me? God told me. People go out of their way for extra revelation that trumps or belittle what God has already said and affirmed. Now I'm about to get real here, so keep your eggs or your fruit or your rotten fruit or whatever. You you can just talk to me later about it. There are women like Beth Moore who try to find their fulfillness or their fullness in callings that are not theirs. And you have one of the biggest fights you will ever see in evangelical Christianity. Ladies, often well-intended, affirming themselves as something that Scripture says that they are not to be. Pastors, elders, overseers in the church. The Bible, here we go. If, If you want to throw your fruit, go for it. Rotten fruit, go for it. The Bible prescribes men to be elders and leaders in the church, not because the men who wrote the Bible are upholding patriarchy, 
Not because the men who wrote the Bible were sexist, but because the God of the Bible wrote the Bible and he is holding us to his standard of truth and not to one that we can make determinant upon our culture. Therefore, fulfillment in this way or any other way, contrary to the Scriptures, is sometimes a lifelong golden calf incident playing out right before our eyes. The second, now, I'm going to go ahead and give this disclaimer right now. Stephen and I had this conversation on Saturday, or Friday, so this is not because we had this conversation. This just happens to be in there. But the second biggest fight amongst evangelicals is trying to find nearness with God through social causes. There are men and women who are finding fulfillment in fighting against oppression and whiteness, which we can all agree that the history of America is riddled with oppression of certain people, specifically African Americans, but that's not all. Uh, Asian Americans and Mexican Americans and all sorts of people have faced oppression through the history of our country. We can admit that. But where we might differentiate is when we make race the dividing line and not sin and transformation through the gospel. To fight oppression by emphasizing race uh, in, is, is a golden calf incident playing out right before our eyes. It is worshiping the right God, trying to do the right things in the wrong way. But that isn't all, friends. Labeling Donald Trump as God's anointed and then hanging on every word he says or everything he does is no different than seeking Aaron for advice instead of waiting for the Lord to speak. Donald Trump and conservatism can and is often a golden calf for many evangelical Christians. Drawing near to God will not happen through extra-biblical events and conversations, through breaking God's commands for self-gratification, or even if it seems, even if it seems spiritual. It will not happen through social justice, conservatism, our children, our pastors, or anything else not specifically prescribed in the Bible as how we draw near to God. So what do we take? So how do we take on important social causes and still draw near to God? Oftentimes we, instead of taking on these important social causes because we are near to God, we take them on in an attempt to draw near to God. We take on position in the church or, or position in a, a Bible study or a group or with friends. And we try to draw near to God. But let me tell you, friends, we don't draw near to God through social causes or any of those things. God has prescribed an easier way to draw near to Him. And those social causes and our position, our status within the church, the life of our children conservative politics, all of these things will likely be a secondary result of being close and following the God of the universe. In his commentary on Exodus and Jewish history, the author of Hebrews saw what was happening with the people of God and he gave them a prescription for drawing near to God. And as I tell you this, you're going to think it's so easy that it's crazy. It's so easy that it's crazy. And really, a surprise to you, it is a prescription that God has given to mankind throughout history. I want you to turn to Hebrews 10 really quickly in your Bible. It's not going to be up here. So this is the time that you should have an app ready or a Bible or something of that nature. Hebrews 10, and we're going to look at 19 through 25. The, the author of Hebrews gives us the prescription to draw near to God. The prescription, friends, to draw near to God is not to be a preacher. It's not to be a concert, conference speaker. It's not to be in a worship band. It's not to wear Christian t-shirts. It's not to vote for people who um, promote Christian ideals or conservative ideals. The prescription to draw near to God is so much more simple 
Because what it does is it allows these things to be added unto us after we seek God first. Look at verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us draw near. Now, the first part of this is talking about how um, everything that, we're, that was established today, Jesus, like, just stopped. He, he, he bucked. He tore the veil. He gave access. He opened it wide open. The glory of the Lord shone forth. John said, we beheld the glory of God through Jesus, not through the seams of the, of the sewn together cloth of the tent of meeting, not through the seams of the tent of the Holy of Holy, but through the holiest of holies, Jesus Christ. We saw the glory of God. And he says, since we have that, since his flesh was torn, since his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, since we have that, let us draw near to God. And here it is. It's the easiest prescription to draw near to God. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Once you've drawn near, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We've seen it. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the day of his return. You need to write these down on paper, friends, today, or you need to write them into your heart because it is the prescription for daily, weekly, monthly, yearly drawing near to God. It really is too simple. It really is too simple for us. The first way we draw near to God is through a true heart. One that seeks after the objective truths of God. This is simplicity. It is simple. How does one draw near to God with a true heart? We look at God and we say, Lord, what do you have to say for us? What do you have to say to us? And then we realize that God has written, he has canonized, he has sealed what he has to say to us through his word. And so then we take those two conclusions and we say, God, what does your word say to us? And then we follow that, we obey that, not because we think so-and-so in the crowd will see us, not because we think it elevates us above another person, but because it is the right thing to do. And we do it in sincerity for the right reasons. A true heart is one who sees the simplicity that God has given us what He wants us to do, follows it in sincerity, and holds to that and nothing else. And friends, if what you follow or do does not reconcile with the Scriptures then you are wrong. That's what a true heart is. You know what reconcile is? It's making the, books making the books match. Reconciling is an accounting term, and someone else might have a better idea of how to describe this than me, but it's making sure that what you say on the left hand matches the right hand. We draw near with a true heart. Full assurance. That is the faith that is completely dependent on the work of Christ alone. Hebrews later goes on to say that without that kind of faith, a faith that is dependent on Christ alone, it is impossible to please God in Hebrews eleven six, We can't trust in the color of our skin, friends, our position in the church or in our household, our political affiliation or our moral platitudes, but Faith in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Yes, social causes have a place in the Christian life. Yes, political causes have a place in the Christian life, along with another list of things. But our faith, our full assurance is in Christ Jesus, and those things don't hold a candle to Christ alone. 
I'm afraid, though, it's often the other way around. Uh, I'm afraid we often put our assurance in social causes, in skin color, in political affiliation, position, financial security, affirmation from others, cultural expectations, and you name it. Draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance. Full assurance or full faith in Christ Jesus alone. A clear conscience is another way we draw near to God. How do we have a clean conscience, a clear conscience? Because we have been sprinkled clean from evil and our bodies are washed with the pure water of the gospel. Friends, the Christians I have met with the most satisfied minds are the ones who don't try to take the atonement out of the hands of Christ. The Christians I have met with the most satisfied minds are the ones that let, do, let God do the work of cleansing and paying for our sin. And we do the work of following Him closely, as close as we can and know how. In my mind, a clean conscience, a clean conscience is simply this. If man has any hope in salvation, it's through the work of Christ alone. When I step in, the work gets muddy. The work ends up intentionally sometimes and unintentionally sometimes popping up little idols in my way. Little idols from my work. Clear conscience, a clean conscience. Hold fast. We draw near to God by holding fast. This is simply fighting, friends, not giving up. Because the spiritual life is a daily battle between our old self and our new one. Hold fast. Stand your ground. Submit to God and resist the devil. Stand fast to your conviction regardless of the circumstance and the noise. Do you know how I know that our worship as individuals is not where it should be? Because there's not enough of us coming to Sunday morning service broken and expectant. The reason we harp on worship is not because we want a better atmosphere It's because if we were really contending for the cause of Christ throughout the week, when we got here on Sunday, we would be so broken. We would be so torn. We would be so spent that you wouldn't have have to form a worship atmosphere. You wouldn't have to mold it with great uh, words coming from Blake. Or you wouldn't have to mold it with emotional songs. You wouldn't have to mold it uh, with, with ten verses of an altar call. If we were contending, if we were standing firm, this would be the place where our tanks would be filled. And we would be so thankful and so full of gratitude that it would show in genuine worship. But I'm afraid, friends, you and me and the church alike throughout this culture, this Western culture, isn't contending enough where worship on Sunday, where corporate worship, worship in your house matters. That's why churches have to have fog. It's why they have to have lights. It's why they have to have emotionalism. Because worship is supposed to be an emotional, not just an emotional response, but a a response to God that breeds emotion at times. Often. And when people aren't contending for the gospel, it shows up in worship that has to be supported by someone else. We keep striving keep striving in the word, in prayer, in fellowship, in love, in encouragement, in kindness, in Christian works. And we don't stop unless Christ directs us. And we stand firm. We hold fast. Another way we draw near to God, we stir one another up. If social media is taught as anything, it's that we're really good at stirring one another up. But Hebrews says it shouldn't be for the reason we are doing it. Hebrews says that we should promote and promulgate the works of the Christian, which are the works of God. If we are going to stir each other up, friends, let us stir each other up to the works of Christ and to what? To love. To love. I am accountable for your growth just as much as you are accountable for mine. So as a church, we are all involved in ourselves 
or we're so involved in ourself that we can't accomplish this. As a church, we are stirring each other up to good works and love, or it will be evident in the lack of good works and the lack of love. I would tell you, friends, that anything that doesn't fit under this umbrella is handling, handing the gifts that God has given you to a substitute leader and letting him put them in the fire and waiting to see what pops out like an easy-bake oven. We see a problem with not feeling God more, and we hand our gifts to the substitute leader. We hand it to the fire, and poof, out pops Sarah Young and a plethora of other people like her. We see a problem with mistreatment of women and other inequality, and we hand our gifts to the fire, and poof, out fights the fight against patriarchy. We fight, uh, we fight, um, excuse me, we fight, uh, uh, women fight uh, men, and men fight women. And the fight is not for equality, the fight is when, for when women look exactly like men, which is against the design of God. And men look exactly like women, which is against the design of God. The same with social, social justice. We place our gifts into the fire and out comes the fight for race or subscribing to hundreds of genders or saying a baby is just a clump of cells. Conservative won't conservative principles so badly that they give gifts, they give their gifts up and out pops a womanizing, haughty man who, wouldn't be let, who you wouldn't let teach your Sunday school class, let alone lead a country. Now, Donald Trump has done some good things, but often people worship him like he is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Conservative Christians look at Donald Trump and say, these are the gods who will bring us to Americanism again. And friends, I can say this to you because we are, there are people in here, including myself at times, who struggle with this, believing that conservative ideology or a conservative leader is our Savior. This is the exact problem that happened with the golden calf. Standing on your principles is not the problem. The problem is when we use our principles to justify creating a distorted image of God and saying this is God. We don't draw near to God through extra biblical revelation, through sex, through the color of our skin, through conservatism, but through a true heart in full assurance of our faith with a clear conscience that is washed clean by the blood of Jesus and causes us to stir up those affections for Christian works and love in others. This is why God drew near to them, because they got it right for once, because they obeyed the Lord. And this is the last thing, and it's very quick. The glory of the Lord came down to show that he approved of what they had done. I have two kind of sub-ideas under this that I'll explain at one time. But this time, as opposed to sort of obeying halfway, as, to obe- as sort of obeying imprecisely, they obeyed God precisely as he had said. Remember what happened at the golden calf incident. They're like, give us something, Aaron. And Aaron said, okay, give me something. And we'll see what happens. That's not what happened here. They say, give us something, Lord. And the Lord gives them specific and exact detail of how to make his dwelling place. And they did exactly what he said with great precision. And they waited on the Lord. Three things that they did not do in the incident of the golden calf. Moses and the people followed the Lord in faith. They followed the Lord in precision, making sure this time that they weren't just throwing gold into the fire and poof, out popped a calf. But following the Lord's command, detail by detail, until the Lord said they were done. Nearness from God, friends, is not the only way that God comes close to us. And that seems sort of like, a nonsense, no-nonsense sort of statement. It makes sense, I guess. It's also a sure way. It's not the only way that God comes near to us, but it's also a sure way that God shows us that we are being obedient. His nearness is a way that shows us that we are being obedient. It's a way, he says, well done. It's a way that the people of God knew that they had done right back then. It's a way that the people of God knew they do right today. Aaron didn't say these things are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. There is, there is an uncertainty in the presence of God. Aaron didn't have to announce it like he did at the golden 
calf. Because God's presence is a result of his children coming close to him by doing what he says and no other way. And when God shows up, it leaves little room for debate. An even greater builder of the house of God is Jesus Christ. He is the one that tore the veil of the temple in two, granting access to all through his broken body and his precious blood. He is the one that is our righteousness and is our good. He is the one that takes a dead man to life and allows him to choose between the works of Christ and the works of death. And the question for us is, will we rest in the simplicity of what it means to be near to God? Or will we strive looking for other ways? Will we always wonder if it really is all about Jesus? Or for us, is it Jesus plus conservatism? Is it Jesus plus feminism? Is it Jesus plus race? Is it Jesus plus toxic masculine behavior? Is it Jesus plus fame? Is it Jesus plus money? Is it Jesus plus man's approval? Friends, the Lord has made the road so easy, but sometimes what is hidden in plain sight is often difficult to find. Just ask your children when you ask them to find something. Will you commit to the Lord with a pure heart, with full assurance of faith, sprinkled clean, holding fast while stirring each other up to good works and love? There's no easier way to find nearness with God. And truly there is no other way. Pray with me today. Lord, that we would first draw near to you and then all the things of this world will be added unto us the social causes that we are passionate about position notoriety fame financial stability health Lord help us not to draw near to you for those things Help us to draw near to you, and these things will be added unto us. Thank you for your presence in our midst. Thank you that you are not a God who leaves us or forsakes us. As a matter of fact, Lord, when you left this earth, you said that you would not leave us alone, but you left, left us with the Spirit of God who gives us the ability to discern, to know, to understand, and to trust. Lord, would you strengthen us in your Spirit to be more like you so that we can draw each other up, we can, we can exhort each other to Christian works and to love. Oh, we love you. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.